Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends, and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back, as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Ragnar. Thanks for joining us again, Ragnar. Ragnar and KJ were teachers together in Japan. You may remember Ragnar from our Rules of the Game and M episodes. Ragnar owns and runs the Trolley Stop in New Orleans. Why not stop by and have some gumbo? Ragnar conveniently continues to like movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we followed up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. This week, we'll be jumping into the 1921 drama fantasy horror, The Phantom Carriage, directed by Victor Shostrom, also known for The Outlaw and His Wife, The Wind, starring Lillian Gish, and He Who Gets Slapped. Other big movies in 1921 include The Three Musketeers, Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, and Buster Keaton's the boat. Tom will be in the quizzer seat today. How would you describe Phantom Carriage? So the Phantom Carriage is the story really of David Holm. And he learns of a famous rumor, more or less, or a legend, one might say, that uh, the person who is the last to die in the year has to take on the role of really death. And what that requires is you drive around for a year in a carriage and you collect the bodies of the dead um, and bring them on to the next life. We're not really sure, but we know that's the task. Uh, David has also abandoned his wife and two children um, and is living a derelict life. He, upon, uh, upon one night drinking in the graveyard, is killed and the phantom carriage comes for him. The idea being he is the last one to die that year. And the person who drives the phantom carriage, a man from his past named George, um, takes him to these episodes in his past, revealing to David his derelict life and providing him with a mandate really to change his ways. Now, there's a lot more going on in this movie that that plot summary doesn't pull out. Um, and it's fine. I, I you know, hope we, we get into it today. What I find appealing about this movie is that on first blush, it appears to be a simple morality tale, you know, uh, change your ways, you know, and, and repent that the kingdom of heaven will be yours. However, upon rewatch and reflection and really considering what's happening in here, there is a great influence of kind of uh, of Gnostic thought and spiritualism and symbolistic thought kind of wrapped into this and the the kind of the simple critical evaluation that this is an inheritor of a christmas carol right the dickens story in which something very similar happens i think while has some merit um doesn't have let's say all the merit i think the film is doing a lot more a lot uh, a number of different things and a number of interesting things apart from the Christmas Carol that have to do with kind of um, the material body and this idea of the spiritual realm as, um, as both something terrifying, but in some cases, uh, a means of accessing a better life. Um, 
and I haven't worked out all my thoughts on this movie, and I hope to work it out with you guys. So, KJ, what do you think? I love this movie. I thought it was great. Um, I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, it was super creepy. The ghost effects were really cool. I think in terms of silent films, this would be a good one to start with. Uh, it was very easy to follow the plot, which I, I struggle with on some silent films. Um, and it, it grabs you from the first few scenes and, and you want to watch the whole thing. So if you've, well, I mean, you're listening to the show, I'm sure you've listened to lots or watched lots of um, silent films. But um, I think this would be a good one as a starter silent film if somebody was trying to get into the silent films. I also really enjoyed the score. I watched the version with a the music by By, um, and it was really good. The score was really good. I also listened to it afterwards. Um, it, it's really good. It would make really good Halloween music. I was driving my daughter home from uh, volleyball tonight, and it was really foggy out. And I know we missed Halloween by a few weeks here with this episode, but it would be great to have this playing uh, during trick-or-treating. Um, the other score I went back and listened to a little bit was by KTL. Um, I kind of felt like I was in an aquarium watching this movie. There was a lot of wah, 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 like, uh, I don't know, background noises. That, I, it didn't work as well for the few scenes that I had picked out. And then also about uh, being a, 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 like a Dickens tale or um, it's a wonderful life where you kind of look back at your life. In, in this movie, he's, he's chosen randomly. It, it's not, I mean, if he's the last guy to die, that can be anybody. You could have been a really good person or a really, so I agree. I don't think this was a, an evaluation of a bad person's life. It just happened to be, that's who it was in this, in this year. How about you, Nick? Well, I actually had some similar thoughts to you where I thought this was an excellent silent film. In fact, I think even though I have enjoyed some of the other silent films that we have watched on this show, so far this may have been my favorite one. And I do agree with you, KJ. And yes, everyone heard that. I agree with KJ on something that this is a great starter for somebody into silent films. I think the story was very solid while I thought it may have had a darker end than it did, uh, I still enjoyed the overall story. I'm not someone who always gets into the sounds and the music, but when you're dealing with the silent film, that is a big component of it. And I thought it was excellent. I believe I did listen to the version with the score by by, which was perfect. I mean, it really, when there were the few happy scenes there, you felt it. When there were some really dreadful scenes, you felt that too. And one of the things that really gripped me uh, in this movie right from the get-go, this was 1921. The actual portrayal of the phantom carriage as this ghostly apparition and the gentleman who had to work for death for a year to bring these souls into the next domain that blew my mind. I actually really bought into that. And I was like, how did they do it? Like the layering of the film. I really thought that was spectacular, especially in this time frame. And again, I may have seen one that was digitally remastered, but still it was, it was really compelling. So in general, I, I would definitely recommend this to people who even aren't really into going back past the eighties and it would really uh, be benefiting by experiencing this movie uh even if it was their first silent film so i have tons of other thoughts but i'm going to stop right there except for that one bit where tom beat me to it 
there were elements where I did almost get a Christmas Carol vibe with the different ghosts coming. Now it's not exact, but I did get that vibe from it while I was watching it. Um, so I, I, again, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but in general, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Ragnar, what did you think? Well, I'm quite passionate about this film. And the reason why is something that you guys have talked about. So it's going to be a little bit of an echo. Uh, you guys say that this is a good movie to start with when diving into the world of silent film. And there's a reason for that. This film is an, an a massive achievement because here we are talking about it. Uh, we're knocking on almost a hundred years since it's come out. And the, the, the visuals, the story, um, these things still resonate with us a hundred years later, even though the technology has well surpassed what was available at that time. This is a masterpiece, maybe the greatest and the first of its caliber in movie history. And to me, it's so great because it shows people, just like you were saying, that are afraid to go past the 80s that modern films do not have a monopoly on creativity. They do not have a monopoly on great pacing and intriguing stories. And, and there is plenty and plenty to, to discover in, in even in the 20s. And I think The Phantom Carriage is a perfect example of that. So that is why I think uh, I've loved this film for so many years. It just shows that movies have been good. There have been good storytelling since the beginning of cinema, since before cinema. And there's no reason why one should not go exploring these, these decades. I would even say that the storytelling is even of the utmost importance back then because of the limits in technology. And it still surpassed many of the plots of movies we Absolutely. see today. Uh, this movie, I mean, honestly, I, I was watching, you were talking about how effective the, the special effects were. Could, could this be made nowadays? I mean, it would come off kind of looking silly. It, it could not be bested from this because it was so creepy, so atmospheric. Everything was so perfect. It, it's, it's timeless. It truly is a timeless film. Well, Ragnar, you know what the next question is going to be. You've been here a few times. If we're watching uh, The Phantom Carriage again, what would be the best snack to enjoy while we're doing that? Well, I think everyone has heard of the uh, fermented herring from Sweden, uh, Sjöströmming. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation, but I think this is the only thing that you can eat while watching this film. Uh, not only to get a sense of, of, of the country where this movie comes from, but I think it will accelerate uh, your time to become a passenger in this carriage. So I think that is absolutely the way to go. It's time for Movie Quiz. And here we are at round one. The rules for round one are, it is one point per question. However, if you would like an alternative question, once you hear the question, you're free to select the alternative. The alternative can be worth either two or three points. However, it is a gamble. You are gambling those two or three points. So be warned. And I'll let you know, not all the alternative questions are harder than the initial question. So it really is a gamble. All right. Here are the categories. The categories from round one all take their names from Selma Lagerlöf novels, who is the person who wrote the, the novel that The Phantom Carriage is based on. So those categories are Invisible Links, The Outcast, and The Holy Night. Ragnar, what would you like? 
the outcast. It's time for question one. What actually kills David Holmes? Would anybody like an alternative? Um, we got a Pat Gavin this, so. Mm. Problem is I know the answer to this one. Unless it's a trick. All right, I'll take the alternative question. Okay, the alternative. Uh, for And so I can, so there's three alternative questions and I choose if they're worth two or three. So there's one associated with round one. Okay, I would like to lose two points on the first question. Okay, and for you, KJ, the question is, what should David serve? I'm locked in on the real question. Locked in. <laughs> locked in. All right. Since you locked it last, KJ, you have to go first. What should David serve? Well, so David could serve a lot of things. We talked about the fermented herring. That would be a nice thing to serve. <laughs> um, I don't know how popular volleyball was back in the day, but he could have served during the volleyball game. Um, but I guess what he should serve is one year of collecting dead people and helping them on their way. Um, yeah, I, I, well, I don't know, because by the end of the film, I don't even know if he's dead and he kind of gets forgiven for... Lock in! <laughs> he should serve one year of driving the, the, the carriage around is what he should do. All right. Thank you, KJ. Uh, Ragnar, you locked in second. That is correct. So what kills David, I would say nothing since he didn't die. Okay, thank you, Ragnar. And Nick, what do you have? You know, when he's right, he's right. But there was a brief moment where he was dead. And what killed him was uh, he took a, a shot from a bottle to the chest. So I'm going to go for that because I think he was dead and magically came back after he learned his lesson. All right. Uh Points go to Nick and Ragnar. Uh, I, I'm accepting both. I think Ragnar, you're more technically correct because he, he doesn't actually die. Uh, however, we could say he dies and his spirit goes back into the into the flesh or something. It is purposely vague, I think. And um, Nick, well, I, I thought it was maybe a bottle to the head. I'm not entirely sure. You get credit because a bottle hit a guy. And we're not even sure if he's dead anyway. So. You know what's funny? I actually saw that scene, and I think that's what they were trying to do, but he actually got hit in the chest. Yeah. Um, we can go back to the footage. I saw that too. On a footage. Yeah. Like, I think they were, like, trying to imply that, but the actual hit looked like it was more in the chest. Yeah. So that's why I was trying to be technical. And KJ, uh, the answer was, it was a bit of a trick question. The answer was, his brother's prison sentence. Oh, yes. his brother's prison sentence. So, was that a subjective question? Because uh, I don't think he should serve his brother. I mean, I mean, I guess I don't well, know. That's what the, the that's what they asked him to do. He, yeah, they that's did what he's asked. He to yeah, do. that's true. That was iffy legal logic, I would say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, is that how that works? KJ, when you get into bonus point sections, you got to expect these curveballs. Yeah. yeah. Yep. yep. Mm -hmm. KJ, a negative, by the way. KJ, so the points, one, one, and negative two. <laughs> it's a good start, buddy. Um, so one of the interesting things about the, the scene in which David either dies or doesn't die, uh, is suggested to be dead at least, is that it's one of the few seeds that was shot actually at night. Typically, you had 
thing shot, uh, you know, uh, night for day, that type of thing. Um, and uh, this was part of this brand new film studio built outside Stockholm, um, Filmstaden. And it was, uh, you know, part of this big uh, Svetska Bio film company. And they had this new studio. This is the first movie that was filmed there. And movies have been filmed there until, I think, 1971. Um, so this is a, a really big studio. And I'm interested in what you guys thought of uh, the atmosphere of the movie. And I think this scene, I suggest it because I think it encompasses the kind of general atmosphere of the piece. But the scene in the graveyard, the whole sequence of events there and how it sets the tone for the film. Yeah, the graveyard was super creepy. Um, and it does set the tone for the rest of the film. However, I think some of the other places end up being creepier or creepier things happen elsewhere. But this was a great, um, I don't, prologue's not the right word. It, it, you know, it, it taught you how to expect to watch the rest of the movie. Um, and it was creepy with the fog and, and the ghosts. And, and it was certainly dark. I'm surprised they were able to film at night back then. What does the lighting look like that they were using? Yeah, must have been a lot. But what what did you think was uh, creepier? Um, well, there's there's a scene in his wife's house. I'm not exactly sure where they are, um, but he gets surprisingly angry because uh, his wife's trying to save the kids and get them out of the house, and she locks him into a like a kitchen almost. Um, and the tension in that scene, maybe that was just tense. Maybe it wasn't as creepy, but I was more creeped out by what could have happened in that scene then the guys sitting in the graveyard kind of telling ghosts, well, telling stories um, and then having death come up. I mean, it, it, don't get me wrong. It was creepy, but it was on the surface creepy. Yeah, I think that's great. That's actually very close to my reading of this movie, too, is that the uh, like the things of the world end up being more terrifying or more damaging than the spiritual realm, even though I don't think the spiritual realm is exactly a warm blanket either. It also showed how like these people are truly like the downtrodden in society. I mean, everyone is, or the majority of them are very filthy. Like it's just not a very good existence. Like these, these people are struggling. It's, it's kind of funny because a few of the silent films we've seen i just feel like everyone is in dark and dreary places and covered with filth <laughs> but that may just be in the movies that we have seen thus far but it that, really that was something very noticeable to me not only death himself was filthy but these people who are almost like the living dead because they're just subsiding through this lifetime drinking their way and and living horrible lives that kind of carried through and it, it was kind of in that same scene that KJ's talking about with the wife, even when she does get away finally again, she's now even in a worse shack. I mean, this place, talk about filth. And it's just it, it, what we thought couldn't get any worse with the way of living got worse. So I think it just showed you that these were trying times for all these characters. And that was the one common element that I, I saw here, aside from the introduction to the Salvation Army characters who were really focusing more on redemption. But they really uh, had a lot to work through to reach these people. The other scene that was really cool or the other set that was really cool um, kind of bridged the gap. It's where Edit, was her name Edit? You just say it like Edit, like you're editing? 
I think it's more like eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. <laughs> like Weird Al. Um, so, uh, eat it is dying in a room, and it kind of bridges the gap between that graveyard scene and some of the other scenes. So it's just as creepy as the others, but it's somewhere between life and death, as, as Edith, eat it, edit, eat it is. So, um, yeah, I thought that was kind of cool too. The the way each set felt like they were either alive, dead, or somewhere in between. Yeah, I think that this is a, a great movie where its age and the technology of the time really help it. You know, sometimes we watch movies in black and white or, you know, or silent films, and they are that way simply because the technology was like that at, at, at that point in time. But with Phantom Carriage, when you see it now, that, that scratchy restora- restoration, the tinting, the the black and white um it, it really all comes together to create this great atmosphere that is available in so many of the scenes so i think it's almost it's, it's age like a like an old record perhaps helps helps it create a really unique atmosphere yeah i agree uh, the the kind of the use of missing scene too in this is very important um the, the centerpiece of the film is probably when he goes to the hostel and first meets Edith, Edith. And um, you realize in that scene, there was a scholar who pointed it out, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but uh, there's no front to that collection of rooms, the way you would look at a scene and say, we're looking at the scene from a particular perspective. The way the camera is always positioned in, in those collections, it's like three or four rooms. Um, you know, that you're never... Uh, you're never stable ever, right? There's no stability in that space where the kind of the material of, of David and the the spiritual of, of Edith sort of meet. It, it meets in this place that is actually kind of hard to pin down. That scene also really shows us the nature of those two characters because there's a small moment where we think Edith's good deed actually reached David home. And then just as he's, he's putting all his buttons up and he's looking proper, he tears the buttons off, rips the patches out and says, this is how I like it. So it's, it's really telling of how he's going to be throughout the majority of the movie, as well as Edith's character, where she thinks she can continually reach this lost soul. And going back to, to Ragnar's point real quick, like this movie feeling like an old record. When you first see those special effects, I kind of convinced myself, well, they couldn't have done the special effects back then. They must have actually hired ghosts. Like there's that <laughs> feeling that this this film is so old and so tried and true that, you know, maybe I don't know what Sweden was like in 1920s. Like maybe they were just like, hey, you're kind of transparent. Get in my mood. Like it felt that way. Um, yeah, it's a, the atmosphere. Julius Jensen was the cinematographer who developed, who was developing the, these techniques which we might be talking about in a little while. So all, all I will say is that effect did blow me away even early on in this movie. I was like, how did they do this back then? It's a it's a basic in the critical literature, uh, once you get into the nineteen thirties and read about responses, Andre Bazin was was a critic in the thirties who responded to this. He said that ruined the movie. That that movie isn't going to survive into modernity because of, oh, of that special effect. It's too late. How wrong? How yeah, wrong? Exactly. It's it's a great example of uh, 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 different years, different attitudes. <laughs> All right, and now for question number two. 
and this is going to Nick. The categories remaining are Invisible Links and The Holy Knight. I'm going to go with The Holy Knight. Ooh, The Holy Knight. It's time for question two. How many flashbacks does the film use? Will the winner be the closest to the number? Uh, no. You, you, you have to you hit have them to, exactly. Yeah, it's it, it's how many like timelines are in flashback? You're not counting every time the oh. flashback, but how many? How many timelines? Yeah. Got it. How many timelines? Eddie, uh, anybody want to do the alternative? I'll alternate. I got negative two points. Let's keep going. Two or three, buddy. Oh, let's let's go for the three. I got faith in this one. Uh, okay, KJ for three. What is David's job? It's the only time we see him employed. What is his employment? Locked in. Locked in for normal question. Locked in. All right, Ragnar, you locked in last, so you have to go first. What do you have? Okay, so not including the present timeline, uh, I'm going to say that there were five timelines including the the story of the phantom driver which was more of a story within a flashback but we did visually transfer to another timeline okay. very good uh nick you locked in second yeah i'm not really sure if i understand the question but i'm going to give an answer anyway i think there were three and i think they were revolving david Edith and the gentleman who later became uh, the driver of the phantom carriage. Okay, thank you, Nick. And KJ, what do you have? Uh, so I was, I had mentioned earlier, this is a good silent film to start with because it was fairly easy to follow. But before I answer, were there scenes where David did not have a mustache? Yes, I. Were. Because sometimes there, there were scenes okay. with a dude without a mustache, and I did not know. Young, yeah. young David. Young David. Young David. Probably right. young and employed. So I'm not sure what he did because I didn't think that was David. But I think his soul continued on, and he ended up employed with the Muppets as Disweet the Chef. <laughs> so um, David must have been a chef. Okay. Thank you, everyone. So. I hate to tell you this, no one got any points. Though so you guys are lucky because KJ lost three points. <laughs> so in a way, we gain points, uh, Ragnar. So yeah, I'm gonna say he was a carpenter. He was, he was, a, was a carpenter. Like a yeah, we see him do that. Woodwork. He, yep. What was woodwork? There was some kind woodwork. of woodworking. Oh, going. he was planing those boards or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a scene. I was yeah. curious because it looked like a table saw, and I was wondering how they were powering it. Yeah, it could be foot. Probably your foot. That would be a strong foot to cut yeah. through a board of wood. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but they were, they were stronger was, people yeah. back then. Well, <laughs> I mean, they had they had gasoline engines in nineteen twenty one. So they had an engine attack. Okay, that's true. That's true. That's true. So the yeah. foley artage. There wasn't a lot of safety. I saw him leaning over the table with the saw in it to like yeah. carry on a conversation. I was yeah. Like, Whoa, yeah. Dude, There's no like the protection there. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. They had gasoline like, engines, well. not OSHA. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, so, sorry, Kevin. Um, 
in terms of the timelines, there are four flashbacks. Oh, close. So we have, um, guys are both close. The first one is the story of George, who, and, and George's story about the, the coachman. Okay. Uh, then we have the flashback to David and his happy family, uh, which ends when he gets out of uh, prison. Third one, uh, when David moves on to the second town and first meets sister Edith. And fourth one, uh, also occurs in the second town when Edith re re-meets David and tries to unite him with his wife. Oh, see, I lumped it into the characters. So, okay, yeah. but either way, it's okay. I had those, I just added the phantom storyline. I see what you're saying, uh, Ragnar. You had those and then the, the actual account of of the, the carriage. Ah, you should get a point for that. I'll, I'll ask the team what they think. Do you think that's fair? Oh, yeah, that's fair. Is it? What do you think, Nick? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah. got the three people with the timeline. Maybe line. even another point because the host had more time to think about it. That's yeah. nonsense. And I answered the woodworking question. Wow. So. I'm I, I, going to give Ragnar points. He's already <laughs> got a better eye than all of us, KJ. Yeah. I, I'm trying to bring the targeting system back. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think I'll give you a point because I think that was more the wording of the question than your lack of knowledge. Um, but let's talk about the structure of this. So there's initially there's also a five act structure that the film is divided into. Uh, you know, like the acts of a play. Uh, Shustrum does come from the theater after all. Uh, but this kind of envelope system where we have these different flashbacks connected together. What is your guys' reading of that? How that worked? Um, what what that conveyed? Question. And I have a reading of this, which I, I kind of want to trickle out, but I want to hear what other people have to say about the these collection of timelines, which follows the novel pretty closely. I was surprised by the flashback in a flashback, um, but I thought it worked. It was not confusing. Um, I was surprised they were going there, but that worked. Um, as for breaking it up into five parts i don't i don't know if that was necessary maybe on multiple watches that makes more sense but i actually forgotten that until you yeah said. it was a convention of the time all these all the movies that came out of that studio uh broke things up into five acts because they're still trying to define themselves against theater and theater conventions keep trickling in even now I didn't have a problem with it. I thought the flow was good. I liked the use of the flashbacks. I was not confused by mustaches or lack of mustaches. So it worked out really well for me. We talked about how, how old this film is and how close it was to the birth of cinema. And they're, they're just like uh, we were talking about, just like Tom said, it, it, these five parts are a holdover from, from the theater such as uh, other things, the dramatic acting, sometimes you'll see their face, you know, very dramatic in order to have the person in the back of the theater understand what's happening on stage. But what I thought was interesting, uh, and then I'll get back to your question directly, but first I just wanna say what I thought was interesting was that the movie has pretty good acting, very natural acting uh, for 1921, because we think about 1940s and 1950s, and that acting is very stilted and very quick dialogue, rapid fire. And it, it's cool for like noir films, um, but it hasn't aged particularly well. But in Phantom Characters, even older, uh, it was a very natural uh, acting in, on display, at least in my opinion. And as for the division into five parts, uh, I kind of liked it because 
the movie itself is is a parable. You know, we're supposed to learn something from it. You know, at the end, the the driver literally talks to the audience directly. Um, so I think every section had a little takeaway that we were supposed to have that will build up towards the end, which is probably how plays were doing it at that time as well. Yeah, I, I was I happened to especially on the performance of uh, of Victor Schustrup and uh, his wife Hilda Brogenstrom, who was a I think she was in like eighty something movies. That was I think especially a remarkable performance. And a, a performance that almost seemed uh, filtered through like Stanislavski or method acting. It was in no way, um, in, in no way uh, in debt to the, the kind of uh, what we think of as overacting, but what they would might call presentational acting that, that came out of the theater. I mean, it was a, a deeply, deeply subtle performance. And I'd love that performance. I was going to say that I wholeheartedly agree with Ragnar that the acting was magnificent and of course tom seems to think that as well i found it very interesting that i could really understand more than any of the other silent films that i had seen what was going on in the scenes before the intertitles came in and that was kind of rare for me where in some of the other movies i've seen i really was dependent on those intertitles this one, it enhanced it, but did not uh, take away my enjoyment. And they did emote. I mean, you could see what you were supposed to see. And, I, I, and the funny part is this was in another language too. And I almost felt like I could understand what they were saying <laughs> in, in, the, in the parts where you can't hear them speak. So I was really blown away by that very early on in the film. In fact, I think when I was watching this, I reached out to some of my co-hosts just to say like this it's great quality yeah without without the the crutch of dialogue they have to rely on acting and, and emoting and making sure the audience feels that so i think the the fact that it is silent really lends itself to this this type of acting yeah all right now we are at question number three this is invisible links it's time for question three in the story George tells, how many bodies does the carriage collect and how do those people die? Would anybody like an alternative? Yes, I'd like an alternative and I'd like to break the rules and go for five. What? <laughs> I, I allow it. Yeah. I like your can-do attitude, KJ. All right. Tom is drunk with power. Yes, I, I often am. It's <laughs> I just don't know. I don't have any. Um, so here is the alternative question. Well, actually, would anybody else like to jump on that? It's worth five. I'll also give you five. Five, five, five deal. Well, what? What? I'm at three or two or one. No. You are at two. And KJ's negative at negative five. five. Negative five. KJ's at negative five. Double nothing here. Well, double. <laughs> Negative double or <laughs> They're just trying to break even. <laughs> Negative double or nothing. Okay, no, I'll, I'll stick. Uh, the question is, KJ, what is the message that David would like to give to all the world? Locked in for both questions, whatever. Ooh. No, but he it. didn't pick it. Um, I'm locked in. It's for just a bonus. It's just a bonus I'm giving. Oh, uh, locked in. 
since he locked it last, he has to go first. KJ, what do you have? So David's message to the world in 140 characters or less is cry at the end of the movie and your wife will forgive you. Very good. Uh, I think, Nick, you locked in second. Is it, though? Is it? <laughs> uh, yes. And the answer I am prepared to give is three. And the three that I'm going to give are the gentleman who shoots himself and kills himself, the gentleman who drowns after a capsized boat, and I am going to count the death of David because he does come to him and he does pull his soul out of the body. So those are the three I am selecting. Ooh, interesting. I'm going to go with two. And I'm going to do the suicide and the drowning. And I'm going with two because the question states within the tail of the, the driver. David's soul came out after the story was told. Um, so that's why I'm going to go with two. And what was the message, Ragnar? Oh, the message, uh, the, it was the prayer, I believe, basically saying to let my soul mature, let my soul mature before it is reaped. Lord, please let my soul come to maturity before it is reaped. Hallelujah. So Ragnar is right on both. Uh, Nick, you, you did account for everything, but the question did say, within the story George tells. So for that reason, it's a technical reason, which I, I kind of hate, but. I thought this was all George telling a story, so. No. Well, no, that's, well, ooh, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, that's worth a point, Tom. That, no, you don't think so? No, no, it isn't. No, George is not telling the story of David home. We are watching it. We are witnessing it. I, I liked yeah. it, Nick. Try. You get a point in my book. I'll give you a point yeah. next episode. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good. It was, a, it was a good argument. Yeah, but. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to give me well, one actually, of your negative can, can you respond? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think we are seeing the story of David Holm and George. George is not telling it to us. Would you agree with that? Or do you think that's wrong? I agree with it. No, I, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's there is an interpretation where what I said is right, but I'm not going to you know, push it. <laughs> <Okay. too much. laughs> Very good. Yeah. Uh, um, so what I'm interested in, in bringing this question forward um, is this idea of myth and symbol and the kind of spiritual nature of reality that this, this film brings forward. Uh, this movie is made uh, right after there's kind of this Swedish interest in symbolism. We see this in, in their theater. It's a little later. It's maybe eh, 15, 20 years after that starts to die down. And it's also made right in the throes of expressionism. And so there's a lot of these kind of artistic movements that deal with the, uh, with the falseness of reality, false in the sense that it doesn't convey everything that is a part of our lives and a part of our, our world. This may be slightly askew or it might be on topic. So we'll find out in a second. But one of the things I thought was really cool about the story portrayed in this movie is we always hear these urban legends or these different tales. This was just a cool one I had never heard. The person who dies last in the year 
has to work for death, escorting the souls of those who die in the next year until the next person dies on New Year's Eve. I just thought it was a creepy but cool premise. That has to be the best uh, horror movie pitch of all time. I mean, who wouldn't watch that movie? It blew my mind, Ragnar, that it was so long ago. I haven't heard really that version repeat. I mean, we recycle things on the regular. I mean, there are reboots of reboots of reboots. I mean, we had an episode on uh, The Bride of Frankenstein. And one of Tom's questions is, how many movies have a Frankenstein's monster reference? Silly, we couldn't figure it out. But there's a million movies just called Frankenstein. (laughs) How did I not hear of this clock you know ticking midnight on new year's and i just thought that was creepy and great Uh, but i I am interested in in this idea of what is the nature and more importantly what is the attitude this film has towards the spiritual towards the unreal um you know because dickens we get this the same type of thing at dickens in christmas carol the ghosts take ebenezer scrooge to different periods and he gets to see how you're really supposed to to live life and where the source of his trauma is that led him to become the the kind of miser that he is uh, this film the the sort of spiritual reality here um is it i don't think one to fear the way it is in in dickens world the last ghost the ghost of the future is death it's it's cloaked like death death is something to be afraid of now, there's an element of fear here because you don't want to be the carriageman, right? You, you don't want that job. Uh, but I think the, the counter to that is what happens to Sister Edith at the end of the film. She doesn't die, right? Uh, she, I mean, she, excuse me, she does die. Uh, it isn't a tragedy that she dies. Yeah, that's how the film betrays it. So I'm interested in what you guys think of the kind of the spiritual wealth or how it, it treats death. I think she is crucial. Her death is crucial to revealing what this film, what this film thinks about the spiritual side of the world. Um, and I think that is that the afterlife or, or these things that are beyond just regular life are as wide and perhaps neutral as, as the real world is. And by that, I mean, we are seeing the, this horrifying uh, urban legend of the, the phantom carriage. And it normally associates with somewhat bad people. Um, I know at first it seems like, oh, it's just everybody that dies goes in the carriage. But when she dies, and there is no denying that she's basically a saint in this film, he does not take her soul. As a matter of fact, they, uh, uh, George and David leave, and George tells David, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, the people that will come for her soul will be here later. Hinting that there's more, that if you are good, that if you, are, that you lead a, a, a valuable life, there is something else for you. That if you but if you give in to the, your base instincts, that if you give in to drinking and fighting and anger, then the carriage awaits for you. And if you're really bad, maybe you're the driver. And perhaps it's not as random as we think it is. Maybe David is not just a random person, but maybe his, I mean, he was actively very bad. (laughs) And so, and then he's given this fate uh, seemingly. So I think it's a very complex uh, world that's just barely hinted at. I'm glad you used the word neutral because that's what jumped out at me too. The 
driver of the phantom carriage, George, as we know, even when really wicked things are happening, for example, David's uh, wife may be taking her life and that of the children, really dark. He just says, I can just watch. I have no control over this. And this is just how it is. If this happens, that's the way it was meant to be. So just that approach to have no feeling about it at all. It creates that neutrality. And I'm also really glad you brought up that scene because you could almost miss that if you weren't paying attention that why didn't he take her soul? That's the only time we see someone die that he was not involved with. And at first I was like, wait a minute, did she not die? Are her people coming to take care of her? And then I realized, no, she did die. There's someone else out for her uh and in this case because she led a good life i'm making the assumption for a better place but i'm glad you brought up both those points. yeah the book you actually see the people who come for her it's like a room of a of they're not called angels i don't think but they're sort of ethereal they just appear in this room um but yeah what you know they they actually were going to do that in the film but they i think wisely cut it cut it out out or cut it out of the script yeah uh, the other thing about what you're pointing out uh ragnar about uh you know other other people who come for her or death is uh is something not to fear there is i think throughout this a concern with the material right the material seems to be extraordinarily dangerous uh, and it, it tempts you in in a variety of ways drinking most expressly, uh, and, and what that leads to. And it, it seems like um, for death is bad for people whose spirit, that kind of little spirit inside every, you know, inside everyone, this, this is, you know, like a sort of Gnostic perception that everyone has a little spirit that has to be freed from the corruption of the, of the material. Um, and what this movie seems to be saying isn't necessarily like death is bad, but the material is bad. And if you're bound in that, when, when you die, you aren't really dead because you were never able to sort of break free or transcend the material. And eat it is. And eat it is in a very particular way. When she sees that David is, you know, when David comes to her and he seems to supplicate, he seems to be. Uh, he seems to be saved and so this thing she wants this kind of material kind of spiritual thing she wants that she no longer needs she's got that um and she's able to move on and i think there is also some critics have pointed this out and i'm interested in what you guys think it's not related to a question but uh there's sort of hints that critics believe in her, her performance and in the book that she has more than a spiritual interest in in david not, not a full-on crush let's say but she finds him appealing at least i didn't think that was subtle i thought oh. she said she was like in love with him okay good yeah i i, yeah, I, so I didn't yeah. think it was subtle at all i think this lady was thinking about leaving the salvation army to be with david yeah. until until he, she found out that he was married i think that's when she was kind of in a duality situation yeah. I, I don't know if she's like hey let's leave the salvation army now but i think there no, is I, i'm i'm going you're exaggerating above okay yeah, yeah exaggerating but yeah but she i think there was more than just i want to help this poor soul she yeah. became fond of him 
you know, there is a there is a again material aspect to the the inauguration of that relationship. I was confused about that relationship because she does surprisingly say, "This is the man I love," and I was very confused by that because it seemed at first a little bit shoehorn, like this guy. I mean, there's nobody else in this village. This guy, so it almost felt like a forced romantic spin on things that we're so used to seeing in modern films. And maybe that is the case, I don't know. But by the end of the film, I was perhaps leaning slightly a different way that maybe her love was more akin to the love that, you know, if you look at the religious uh, aspect of it, that someone like Jesus Christ has for everyone. And <clears throat> if you think about it, he was the first person to walk in her first kind of, so to speak, customer, and, and she must have some kind of religious aspect to it. So God put this man in front of her. And so I think that created a bond with him that was a type of love. And that's what I kind of went with by the end of the film. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Ragnar, maybe not quite as extreme. Um, but we mentioned Ragnar and I used to teach in Japan. And um, we started at the same time. But a few weeks later, another set of teachers started. And um, one of our friends, Dan, it was his first day and he was so excited and he didn't have any students that day. And he goes, hey, I want to go out in the lobby and I want to go meet some students. So he and I went out there and we talked to, I mean, I don't know, must have been 30 different people who were like, why are you guys out in the lobby? But he was just so excited to 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 start his craft and his new job and I, I think this is a, a very similar case where she was just excited to help somebody and and really, you know, had this sunken cost, which was I helped him, even though he's not that cool. And he um, hurt me, damaged me or inflicted something on me that I'm not going to get rid of. So I got to double down and really save his soul to make that worth it was how I kind of read this. Yeah, I, I think I read it as both. I, I think it was that kind of, um, you know, a higher love and uh, a higher love and a kind of spiritual love and bodily love were kind of mixed together. And she develops over time. And, you know, she's it develops so that the thing that's important is her, her spiritual love. And when she sees that has been fulfilled, um, she's able to, to go on. Going back to the original question which was uh how do we feel about the spiritual world the spiritual world spiritual world it's the world that is very spiritual <laughs> the spiritual world <laughs> uh shown in this movie um i just i i don't have anywhere to go with this but i did want to compare it to another movie we watched called afterlife which had a very different view of of the spiritual world and what it's like to transition from a life to death but it's interesting that both movies ended up examining a life of a of a character in the movie. So even though they had very different approaches, examining that life seems important in both movies. And they both have the same idea of let it go, let it go of, of the material, being able to contain the things that happened in your life in order to say goodbye to them and transition on to something that you don't know what it is. Well, Tom, what, where do we stand after round one? Okay, after round one. Oh, my goodness. Ragnar is in the lead with three. Nick is right behind him with one. And KJ, 
has set a new talking pictures trivia record with negative eight points. Negative ten, Tom. Let's get the negative ten. Let's get negative ten, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry. Negative. As long as I can keep uh, coercing you to make me bet all my points, you know, zero's the limit on the upper side. Well, what I'll say is don't celebrate too much yet because the episode's not over. He still may not be the lo- the worst loser yet. So we shall see. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Talking Pictures Trivia Theater presents a screaming lapel pin production. The Jane of My Youth, a coming-of-age story of young love. Read by me, Tom. Chapter 8. The Alien Menace. As the blood spread around the table on the floor, Michael saw one of the figures drop onto the center of the room. It was short and not distinctly one gender or the other. The low levels of white light and the green glow reflected off of the white skin or covering of the creature. Riley's blood spread out before it as it began to work its way further into the theater. Michael couldn't look at the being. It seemed so otherworldly. Its face was not recognizable from the rest of its hazy form. Michael inched backwards, trying not to trip, trying not to lose sight of whatever this thing is. Mabusa slid towards the being, the rubber heels of his cheap shoes clogging with blood. Aliens, you see. Aliens from afar. All along I knew that screaming lapel pins had manufactured the gateway between the planets. Their snazzy luxury wear, sexual appeal, and howling animal heads were merely a cover for their scientific research into locality displacement. We now can bring forward extraterrestrials from the planet Kepler-442 over 100 light-years away. Do you see, Jane, my pet? These are those superior beings who sent us the instructions to build the box. We only need to find the key, and thankfully our little Michael here had just the one we needed. Joined pin and box, open the gateway to a superior being, a species that will rule the world. Jane stepped back. Still silent, she looked on, expressionless. What was wrong with her, Michael thought, still believing somewhere in the back of his mind that after all of this was said and done, they could go out on that date. He moved towards her, and Mabusa moved closer to the alien. Welcome, my friend, to Earth, your new kingdom. The creature turned and reached a long, slender limb towards Mabusa, yanking him forward. At that moment, Jane held up her hand over Michael's eyes. He heard Mabusa scream, a long, nasal, painful scream, interrupted by the sound of blood catching in his throat. When Jane took her hand away, Michael saw what had happened. The alien had pulled the head and spinal column directly out of the body of Mabusa, exposing webs of nerves and tendons, rotting on the red 
dying meat of his ruined muscles. His eyes had exploded, ocular jelly dripping down his cheeks and onto the broken muscle tissue still linked to his back. His voice still worked, and he screamed, begging for mercy, as the alien began to slowly tear bits of muscle from off Mabuse's face and placing it into its mouth. Blood spouted out of the flayed body like water from the Trevi fountain. The alien grabbed Mabuse's tongue and yanked it out of his head, causing another enormous stream of blood to shoot out of Mabusa and hit Michael square in the forehead, dripping down his nose and still open mouth. He grabbed Jane's hand. Run! This has been Talking Pictures Theater presentation of A Screaming Lapel Pin Production. The Jane of My Youth a coming-of-age story of young love. This week, Screaming Lapel Pins has on sale the lacerated avocado hoarding white-breasted nuthatch. Pick one up wherever Screaming Lapel Pins are sold. And we're back. Tom, take it away. All right, thank you, Nick. The categories in this round are all taken from other Shostrom films, and here they are. The Voice of Passion, The Divine Woman, He Who Gets Slapped, a.k.a. The Price is Rot. Ragnar, what would you like to pick? There is no way I would pass up a category that says He Who Gets Slapped, so let's go. All right, let's go for it. This category, also known as the Price is Hot, not meaning right, uh, <laughs> is a Price is Right style question. It's time for question four. Without going over, how many intertitles are in this film? There are alternatives. Would anybody like to go for the alternative? Yes, I'd like to go for the alternative. And I'll give you five points. Whoa, whoa. So before you ask the question, I'd like what? 10. If nobody ten. else is going for Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, 10. I'm going to go for the alternative. You're going alternative, so we're going 5-5. Five, five. I'm fine where I'm at. <laughs> oh, Nick so. is going to automatically win. <laughs> as long as he doesn't go over. As long as I don't go over. As long as you don't go over, that's right. Okay, so let me ask the alternative then. For Ragnar and KJ, how do you get out of the kitchen? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in the kitchen. All right. It sounded like Nick locked in first. So, Nick, what do you have? Well, since I'm the only one in the Price is Right category, and I, just to make it a little bit more interesting, I'm going to say five. So, Nick, you have nine. Uh, then you get a bonus question, which could add to your score, could add another two points to your score. Within 10, guess the number of intertitles that are not used to communicate dialogue. So intertitles without dialogue in it. Did you say within 10? Yes, within 10. Seven. And now I will, uh, I'll tell the answers for that. It was 132 and nine. You do get the two. (laughs) That's a win. You do get the two points. And now I want to hear, I think uh, we did, Nick. And then KJ, I think you've got to go now. 
if you are locked in this particular kitchen that happens to have an axe, the first thing you do is you try to use the axe to knock out the lock. That will work fairly well. However, the door is still not open and you're in a bit of a rage, so you don't quite understand. So you then use the axe to hit the door. Once you get the top half of the door open enough for a dramatic effect, you then reach around and try to grab the doorknob that you would expect to be there. However, because you hit the doorknob first, the uh, doorknob's not there. You then use the axe to continue to chop it where the doorknob would be on the side that you're on, which will then allow the door to open and you come out swinging. That's how you get out of this kitchen. Here's Johnny. At Ragnar, what answer do you have? I would say the exact same thing. I'll just add that before you go to the axe, maybe you should bang on the door and yell a little bit. Um, and, and then why does it have to be locked? I do that every day. Whenever I'm in, every time I close the door, I find my nearest act. I chop that thing down because doors are for suckers. Agreed. Doors are for suckers. That's, that's 10 points that go to both KJ and Ragnar. Ragnar gets 10 points? <laughs> 10 he gets points 10 points. Because he asked for it. And I'm very nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> go big or go home. These are the I would have done it for 10 points. Yep. So that's, uh, uh, Nick, Nick has five. So Nick uh, got back. Nick, in- Nick has three. Five total. Three total. Three. <laughs> one on half. Oh, what actually oh, killed David Holmes? He, I thought he had two and then got two. That one. Yeah. One on the David Holmes kill and two on the how many intertitles? Oh, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. You're right. I looked at the wrong column. Okay. Very good. All right. So <laughs> why I brought this up um, is... A... <laughs> why did you bring this up? <laughs> I can't let the guests dictate how many random points they want anymore. I think we have to put a kibosh. What? Three zero thirteen. <laughs> I blame myself. Yeah, yeah. I do too. Yeah, but uh, so why I I brought this up? What I'm interested in here is uh, the influence this movie had. And the echoes that that we see of this, and Nick, I think you you kind of indicated it with "Here's Johnny." Um, it it, echo, it actually echoes in both directions, because we have uh, from a prior work, um, "Broken Blossoms" with the axe to the door, and then we fast forward to um, "The Shining," and you have a similar situation with um, with the bathroom door. So I've never seen The Shining, but I was still hoping the inner title card was going to say, here's Johnny. That was ad lib, too, by the way, uh, for that movie. Yeah. Well, they, I think they shot that scene 135 times. I think that after a while, they, the Shining scene, I think after a while, you just start yelling whatever because you lost your mind from repetition. Um, Speaking of doors, how many doors must they have gone through for that? I guess for those who don't know what we're talking about, which I think is most people would understand The Shining from 1980, uh, Stanley Kubrick's film and uh, Jack Nicholson's famous scene when he might be getting possessed a little bit and starts uh, hacking at a door to get someone. 
Yeah, he go, go he goes after his wife and kid also, just as uh, just as David is going after his wife and kids. Um, but Nick, that's a really good point. It, it goes in both directions. Uh, critics have often talked about the influence of Broken Blossoms on this picture, and yeah, it, it's a really good point because it's almost certain that uh, Schustrom had seen it. D.W. Griffith was very popular, very popular with him personally as an artistic influence, and so the kind of locked in the closet, terrifying father figure, that that is most likely taken from Broken Blossoms as I think that came out uh, about a year, I think it came out in 1920 in Sweden. Uh, it made it to Sweden by 1920. So that was big in the theaters when he was working on this project. Yeah, but it is the, the kind of endurance of this film is, is interesting. The uh, the critics I, were, I was reading, a lot of them initially when it came out saw this as the masterpiece that it was in the 1920s. Um, you know, it was listed as one of the three greatest films, uh, I think along with um, uh, Birth of a Nation and one other, I, I can't remember, but it was kind of on that list. Uh, and then by the 30s, it fell off and it was really seen as a special effects exhibit something out of the Lumiere brothers uh, rather than the film that we see. And it seems to be that part of the, the I don't want to call it a resuscitation, but maybe the afterlifes or the way that we now consume this film for what it is. And a big part is, is Igmar Bergman and how profound an influence he had. And then of course that's reflected because Igmar Bergman has had a profound influence on everyone who's made movies after what, what would you say Ragnar, 1965? 1956 as yeah. soon as they made it to america <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i was reading about that tom and they pretty much said that igmar bergman watched this film at least once every summer either alone or in the company of other younger people like it was a big influence on him and his works yeah you could see you know wild strawberries he literally is casting shostrom uh the seventh seal is thematically on the same page um you know it, it's also about I don't know what it is with the Swedes and this kind of idea of of the uh, the disease of the body that one has to escape. It seems to be a theme in a lot of these, even though, you know, obviously Bergman is very suspicious of religious belief in, in his movies. Um, but what's sort of interesting about this conversation and about reading those critics, uh, is something like you were pointing out, Nick, is how this idea of the afterlife, this sort of formulation of the afterlife is one that itself has been cut off. We don't talk about it anymore, even though the icon of the traveling Grim Reaper or something like that, uh, that sort of persists. So it almost is like the visual ideas in this movie, the, the transparency of the characters, the idea of a ghost. There's actually one of the complaints from one of the critics in the 30s was, we don't know ghosts would be like this, which is profoundly dumb. But anyway, yeah, anyway, uh, like, why can't they be solid? I, sure, I, I don't know, but this is how this movie does it. Uh, but anyway, but so it seems like the, the sort of, the images, the icons are what trickle out of this movie. You know, breaking down the door with the ax, right? To get at your family. Um, you know, and I was wondering what, if you felt anything in this movie was familiar from your own viewing habits and favorite films. One of the things I thought was interesting at the portrayal of the person driving the phantom carriage 
and I actually am going to relate this back to Frankenstein. So in the common understanding, we have a view of death and the Grim Reaper as synonymous, okay? Whereas this movie portrays this poor soul working for death. But in our minds today, how is death envisioned? It is a guy with a sickle, excuse me, a scythe and a draped, you know, cape. In our version, a lot of times he's all bones, but still the same kind of portrayal there. Whereas in our discussion on Frankenstein, we relate the term Frankenstein to the monster, even though it really was Frankenstein's monster. So I don't know if this was just their interpretation or if over time, death has become the one who is on the carriage. So I thought about that a little bit and I'd love to hear if you guys, you know, think that's something uh, you thought or if it's just a coincidence. Yeah, no, I think that's actually a very good point. And because I was also thinking the, the curse, so to speak, is said that you will become death's driver. Um, you don't become death, you become death's driver. And so that is true. Death is not seen, so to speak. Death chooses the person, the person dies. And then the driver, the Grim Reaper, goes uh, and, and picks up that person. And yeah, it's very good. Just like Frankenstein, it has become the same person. And um, just, a, just as a quick side note, um, you were talking about, and I think this is a very good point, how for the, I think maybe the only time I've seen it, the Grim Reaper is depicted as a very sad man, a broken man. And I think that is why I like uh, the score by, by I think Mati Bai, I don't know what his name is, Mati Bai, because in that scene where George takes off his uh, hood and you see him for the first time, the music is tragic. It is sad, it's not scary. You see David seeing his old friend and what fate he has been given. Uh, if you look at the, the, the more modern score, it's just, sound trying to make it scary um so i think it loses the, the tragedy of of the grim reaper so i think that's a a, a very good point there. yeah I, I think that's a good, a good point from you too ragnar the, this idea of uh of this movie it doesn't seem to be a something that is scary right it doesn't fit into horror at all and the grim reaper while you don't want to become the Grim Reaper or the, the Wagoneer, uh, whatever you want to call George. Um, it, it, he's not like necessarily a threat. And he, he's actually, uh, you know, uh, he ends up becoming entirely a positive role by the end of it. Okay, KJ, you get to pick between the final two categories. They are the voice of passion and the Divine Woman. I'd like to do The Voice of Passion. It's time for Question 5. Where and in what context does David's wife see him again long after she left him? Would anybody like an alternative? I would like to have 20 points for the standard <laughs> question, please. For the standard question? <laughs> no, Nick, but I will give 10 points to the alternative. <laughs> oh. 10 points, huh? Doing? It's a big gamble. It's a big gamble. Yeah, we're, we're setting a new standard. Doing, KJ? Well, I think I, well, I think I 
Mm. I think I know some of the answer to the standard question, but 10 points, Ragnar. That could really put me behind. Juicy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go alternative. You'll go alternative? Nick. Okay. Uh, What's Ragnar doing? I was just waiting for you, Nick. The, the, you guys are the host. <laughs> I know you're playing you games. First. I, don't, I know. <laughs> That's not how this works. <laughs> I know that Ragnar is going to get the standard question right. But if I get the standard question right, it gets me no closer to the victory. So I have to go with the crazy 10-pointer. Is everybody going Let's with the 10-pointer? Let's do it. All in. Everyone's oh, going with the 10-pointer. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So for that one, I'm actually going to go with the more interesting question. When it comes to the Nobel Prize author of The Phantom Carriage, Selma Lagerlof, was the first person to do what two things? Was she in the movie? No, she wrote the book The Phantom Carriage that oh, the movie's based we're, on. We're breaking we've, we've the rules for this 10 point. That, we are breaking the rules. In the movie. You gotta be in the movie. You mean impossible. <laughs> yeah, I didn't research her. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't but even think know it, she wrote it until you told me. She's a Nobel Prize winner. Okay. What two first things do you think she's done? You know, her winning the Nobel Prize was the first of two things. Oh, oh. And be specific. Locked in. Is there partial credit? If you get one, I'll give you partial credit. Yes, I'll give you five for one. Wow. But it's also a gamble, so you might lose five for the other. <laughs> <laughs> it's... it's, it's... It's specific to the Nobel Prize. It's not like she was the first person to eat the biggest sandwich in Sweden. It's specific to the Nobel Prize. When it, because it starts off the, the introductory clause when it comes to the Nobel Prize. So it has to be within the context of the Nobel Prize. I'm locked in. I'm half locked oh, in. Oh, I didn't hear you. I'm sorry, Ragnar. I'm, I'm locked in. Okay, so I think it was KJ locked in first, then Ragnar, then Nick. I'm half locked in, so okay. I'm working on the other half. All right, do you want to? No, just give me a second. Okay. So if I get partial credit, I get one right, but then I get the next one wrong, I'm back where I started pretty much. Exactly, yeah. But if they get it, but, you know, if uh, <laughs> they get it wrong, you are tied for the lead. Okay, I'm... Fully locked in. All right. So, KJ, you locked in first. What do you have? So, I, I like my joke answers, and I'd like to say she was the first carriage driver that came back and got to write the story. It was kind of not quite a first-hand account, but yeah, kind of. But I'm going to go with she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize and the first author to win a Nobel Prize. Those are my two things that she did with a Nobel Prize that were firsts. Okay, thank you, KJ. Ragnar. Okay, uh, I also did uh, woman, first female. Um, and I went a different route. I went, she was also the first uh, Swede to win the prize. Nick, what do you have? I second what KJ had. I only knew that she was a female and I knew that she was an author. So I'm saying she's the first for both of them to win the Nobel Prize. You all are wrong. 
Uh, Ragnar, <laughs> I think Ragnar is the closest, but if we're all wrong, we're wrong. <laughs> You're all wrong. Oh okay, so negative actually... seven, <laughs> negative ten, and three. Is that where? Yeah, so you're down to three, Ragnar. Uh, KJ, you're down to negative 10. And Nick, what do you, you down to negative, negative seven? Yeah, okay. So this is why I said specific because she is the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in literature. She's not the first woman to win the Nobel Prize. Madame yeah. Curie did it in 1903. Oh, uh, that's true. Lagerdorf did it in uh, 1906. And she is the first Swede to win the Nobel Prize in literature. Wow. Not generally. We had uh, two Swedish prizes going to, um, I'll tell you in a second if, if you're interested. Yeah, I didn't think I was right with female, but again, that was the only thing that I knew yeah. she was a female author. We had the first Swede to win it, also in 1903, was August Arthidius for his work in electrolytic theory of dissociation so you, you dumb bastards how did you not know that tip of my tongue uh, yeah so that, yeah so we have rules Tom. we have rules i i, I don't think i've ever listened to them though. I no didn't break it's like okay i'm gonna have 20 alternative <laughs> questions worth 500 points uh all right but in terms of the natural question um it was uh, uh, the Salvation, Salvation Army, Army yep. rally. Yep. Yeah, it was. Where does she see him again after? Uh, see him again long after she has left him. Uh, it's the Salvation Army, uh, and it's a discussion of prohibition. Uh, and I'm interested in the the kind of way uh, drinking is framed in this movie, and the way we we see uh, you know kind of. Uh, the prohibition effort. Just a little historical background. 1922, there was a vote to do prohibition uh, and it failed 41 to 59 percent. Uh, excuse me, 51 to 49 percent. So 51 percent of the voters were against prohibition, 49 for. Uh, it also split along gender lines. Women were overwhelmingly in favor of prohibition, then overwhelmingly against. So unlike America, there wasn't this absolute restriction on drinking. Um, yet I think the, the movie obviously takes a kind of prohibition, a pro-prohibition stance. And I was wondering what you, you people, what you people, <laughs> what, what you guys thought of the way kind of evil at the different ways e evil or bad influence gets at people is portrayed in this film. Well, it was from the drink. I mean, every single person that they portray that goes down that path. It's somebody who brought them into a group of drinking buddies. And even early on, actually the main character, David, I think this is before he goes to prison. He's literally like talking about a cliche, lying in the gutter, drunk out of his mind. So they're not even kind of shy about that. There is a direct correlation that those who, uh, drink in excess, and not even drink in excess, drink are drawn to the dark side. Yeah. Yeah, it's also, it's those things that give you pleasure are, uh, are the things that destroy you, right? And it's it's uh, the, the prohibition scene, kind of the prohibition hall, 
and uh, it's an interesting spot for the wife and David to kind of meet again. They, they see that each other's there. And so the wife is able to go to Sister Edith and say, yeah, that's, that's my husband. That's why he kind of fell into this mire. In the book, the wife is blamed more for the, the descent of David, uh, which I think is wisely kept out of the movie. Uh, David is his own, it destroys himself. Um, and I was wondering if there was a, a kind of irony built into the fact that the kind of the, uh, the, the additional harm this woman, David's wife experiences is in the context of this prohibition hall and this uh, kind of grand effort for uh, escape from these kind of material deteriorators. My grandfather is Swedish and he was born in the early 20s. Um, so he is cut of the same cloth that the people in this movie are. And I've talked to him at length of how, it, how was it being raised in this kind of uh, somewhat rural uh, old Sweden. And it is a vastly different timeline and a vastly different type of person than, than what we're used to nowadays. And he doesn't drink. And it's not really because of a religious thing. It's just because that leads to bad behavior. And why would you want to do bad behavior? There's work to do. Uh, there's, there, we have to look out after each other. It was a very community-based um, lifestyle. And for someone to drink, uh, of course, you know, with New Year's and, and some church services, yes, of course. But usually when people drink, at that time, it was in excess. It, when it was a problem, it was when it was in excess. And you were seen as just like a plague. Not, maybe a plague is too rough, but you, were, you stuck out a lot because now you're not doing your part. And we are all suffering because of it. So now we all have to get together to try to fix this. Um, and I think the movie is kind of on that side. You know, it never portrays alcohol in any good light at all. And that's interesting to point that out. The because the, we've been talking about, um, the, or uh, a few of us have been talking about, like, like the spiritual element and how alcohol is a deteriorator there, and bringing in the kind of the communitarian aspect of it is is very interesting. Um, I think it is a secondary concern of, of Schustrom in this, but I do think like talking about how it it dissolves community bonds um, does come up a bit, especially when we see the hostels, right? The hostels are the community gone wrong. All right, and here is the last question. It's time for question six. What kills Sister Edith and how does her death come about? Is this one worth 15 points? Oh, uh, this one will be worth, it's supposed to be worth three, but that's, <laughs> that's really boring. Um, so I'll make it worth 10 across the board. And so that will be, if Ragnar gets it wrong, Nick, you're the winner. And he gets it right. And he gets it right, yeah. Don't you worry. I got this. Locked in. I'll take the alternative question. <laughs> there is another alternative. All right. Um, I, I I know half of the... It's all, it's all, all, all or none. Nick looks very, very confident. Yeah, I think I know the answer too, but I really want to hear the alternative <laughs> question. Some people just want to see the world burn, KJ. I'll stick with the original. Damn it! 
<laughs> okay. So here's the alternative. What technique was used to fill the ghost apparitions? Dodge the bullet. Don't worry, KJ. It was in the movie. <laughs> I can't wait to hear KJ's answer, actually. He's going to mention Ghostbusters. Locked in. Locked in. So just to be clear, if I get the question right and you guys get it wrong, there's a surprise victor here at the end. There's always a surprise here yeah. on Talking Pictures Trivia. Yeah, it's calibrated so that anybody could win this one. Well, Ragnar, what is your answer? Eat it died of a severe cough that she contracted from David a year earlier. Nick, what do you got? Edith died from consumption, which she got from David when she was mending his coat a year earlier. Okay, thank you, Nick. And KJ, what do you have? So I don't know, but if I was to guess, I would assume they used some fancy double exposure to get the the ghost apparitions on that film. All right, and points go to KJ and Nick. Uh, Ragnar is, is very close. Nick had the more clear answer. Double exposure is what it's called. <laughs> very good. That's exactly it, KJ. So KJ is back up to zero. Isn't consumption just a severe cough? It no, it's a, it's a bacterial infection. It's a severe cough. Okay. No, that's you not what kills death. you. Is not the cough. <laughs> it's a type of respiratory disease. Yeah, bacterial uh, it's, infection it's that attacks cough. the lungs. Pulmonary yeah. related. KJ, what do you? Uh, <laughs> so, KJ, KJ, what do you think? Just go to Nick or Ragnar. <laughs> well, to be honest, my answer had the word double in it. I think my point should be double. <laughs> no, it should not be double. You're getting 10 points. I'm getting double exposure. Uh, you yeah. don't got the consumption. I believe it. But I have the cough. Severe. So, Severe. Uh, I, I hate to do this, but Nick, I think you win. Uh, I, I, <laughs> that has to be the tagline for the episode. I hate to do this, but Nick wins. <laughs> I think I, the fan base knows this already. I, I, it was uh, it was more of a reflection on uh, not giving it to the guest. We had to That's significantly right, all alter the right. points. Yeah. <laughs> so Nick even had a chance to win an episode. Oh, <laughs> Honestly, man. Ragnar, it was a fun one either way. I don't even care with this crazy assortment of points that went out today, but Thank you, Tom, for that gracious congratulations. <laughs> you are welcome. All right. Well, um, as I said, I, I, I extremely appreciate that. After the, the insanity that just ensued in this episode, it honestly was a great one. Uh, we'll be back right after this quick commercial break. It's time for... Guess that song, Whistling Edition. I'll whistle a song, and you guess what it is. Here we go.
if you guessed Farmer Refuted from Hamilton, you're right. And we're back. It's time for Movie Rant. Kind of my, my general reading, overall reading, which I think was hinted at throughout this, is uh, that this is a, a, a Gnostic picture, that it's a picture interested in the uh, more, you know, the, the problems or the freedom from the body. That eventually, that, that's what it's going for. It's going for uh, being free from having the spirit, which is trapped by the flesh, looking to, to get out and be free and join the kind of uh, spiritual oneness that is, is the beyond or is the better life. Uh, and I think that's actually uh, plays out by reading of the multiple flashbacks plays this out because what happens is the movie is shattered it's it's a bunch of different units or a bunch of different stories thrown out across the this plot you know we get these kind of four or five separate stories and they eventually in the end collect together into a moment of forgiveness and you know what what uh gnosticism which uh, lagerlev uh, was invested in she she knew about this she was um, I don't know if you would say she was a worshiper in that way, but she was deeply interested and read a lot about this. Um, what's what's then interesting here is that the idea is that once the soul is free, it kind of joins the the unity, the oneness. Um, and here, that's kind of how I read the multiple timelines, the splitting up the the flashbacks. That eventually, by the end, it's sort of uh, you know George is God, and then. We have uh, David getting forgiveness, and at this point, you know, all the timelines have kind of collected together into a, into a oneness. And so I think the Gnosticism is not only in the plot and in the fact that death can be a very positive thing, as we see with the death of Sister Edith, but it's also in the very structure of the film. Uh, I'm not so sure exactly what Gnosticism is. How do you say it again there, Tom? Sorry, my, my ends are off. Just, uh, my nose is stuffy for our, our listeners, which is why I sound um, different than normal. Um, Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. And there was a, a pre-Christian religion that like, there was a, a fall of great beings to the earth and the souls of these people got trapped in flesh and that they have to return to, you know, be free and return to God. Right or whatever their version of God is, and eventually this grafted onto Christianity, uh, because you know that's very similar to what Christian sayings are. Uh, the Book of John, for example, the Gospel of John has Gnostic elements in it. Um, other Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, is expressly Gnostic, using uh, the Christ figure as its center. Uh, and, and what you see with Gnosticism is this idea of a kind of private knowledge. That, that people have. They, they have a kind of a private knowledge of the spiritual world. Gnostic gnosis, knowledge, that's the, that, the derivation of that word. Um, but it is, uh, it's very much devoted to it. Why I bring it into, into this discussion, it's very much devoted to the material contains the brilliant spirit and that death, uh, while you know, many of us might see that as a horror or the thing to avoid, that the Gnostics are suicidal, but they recognize that that is the the point of liberation, right? That that's that's going to be freeing. It's a very anti-materialistic way of looking at things. Yeah. It's interesting because in this movie, 
by the end, um, David Holmes is not dead yet is forgiven by his wife because he cries. I actually didn't like the end of this movie very much. I, I, I don't think he should have been freed from everything he did. So it kind of sounds either the opposite or it's an inverse of the nogs. I still can't say it. Agnostic, right? Agnostic. Agnostic would be someone who doesn't believe in this. Nogstic yeah. is someone who does. Refuses right? the knowledge. Gnostic. Gnostic. Yeah, it's it's not you don't drink <laughs> it's not, it. It's not it's not a holiday uh, <laughs> drink. Yeah, it's not a holiday beverage. <laughs> um that that is it. The ethnic is is somewhat troubling for me too. Um because the idea is is awareness that you are kind of on the right path. For Edith, it is awareness that David is whatever better now. He, she receives the knowledge that he is going to go forth in a righteous way, and then she's able to go. Okay, I can die, right? Ah, so you're um, saying for Edith it was Noxtics. <laughs> I apologize, audience. Um, but for for David Holmes, <laughs> and the jury's still out, so to say. Uh, he's he's acquired knowledge of his sins, right, and how to live a better life. So it is a denial of, I, I think in part, an acceptance of responsibility, which denies the material pleasures, right? Like the kind of spiritual bond with his wife and with his children is going to be stressed over, you know, pleasure, which is not really embodied in, in any kind of sexual way in this movie, but embodied in, in drink, in drunkenness. Um, and so I think part of it is, is acquired the knowledge finding that using the knowledge to kind of be redeemed and to do the right thing to go into the righteous path however it happens pretty easily for him right <laughs> as you're saying he just says like i was just with the sister and the wife goes no you weren't i know for a fact you weren't and he just goes yeah oh nobody will believe me and then he cries and, <laughs> and you know and scene um so it, it's a quick it's a quick bit of forgiveness, but I, I agree. I think the ending is doesn't know what to do with itself. I thought it was going to be a little darker myself as well. I do enjoy the ending for what it is, but I thought it was just going to have a darker undertone that he did not escape that or he had to do his penance, if you will, by serving death, not necessarily coming back. That I didn't necessarily expect him to come back. I thought it might have been a harsher lesson, but I don't dislike the way they went, but I could understand why you might think, KJ, he's getting off easy. I think it's a generational thing, um, you know, how usually the kids go the opposite way of the parents. Um, in a way, I feel this movie and Victor, the director, uh, Shostrom, is forever linked to Bergman. And if you look at the age gap, it's kind of like a father-son relationship. If you want that kind of ending, you're going to get it with Bergman. Um, so I think Bergman is kind of like that, that kind of feeling of this religion, this thing that we're leaning on that's supposed to, you know, take us to the next level and make us happy is not doing that. Um, and he has a more bleak uh, perspective on things. I think uh, Shostrom perhaps still had some kind of faith 
not necessarily or maybe in both the religion but in the righteous path that it will eventually get you to some kind of redemption um and you know obviously i'm not putting this anywhere nearly as scholarly as tom but um he hits rock bottom you know he sees that his actions have pushed his wife to kill his kid um and that i think was his rock bottom that's the moment of change for him so maybe his change i think the change is genuine but her forgiveness did come a little easy i do agree with that so the bergman film that i also think is a somewhat in conversation with this but in the way you're talking about ragmar is i don't know if anybody knows through a glass starkly absolutely yeah where in, in that movie it's not necessarily i don't know if it's necessarily agnostic but the movie posits that god is a spider right? Then that's what it ends up being, like the kind of revelation. I, it's not my favorite Bergman by a long shot. Um, and it's part of a, a trilogy about questioning God. And I, I think the whole trilogy, to a degree, falls flat. Uh, the, the metaphor of God as spider is also a little obvious. Um, but it's interesting to think of the person who made this movie, like you're saying, Ragnar, his artistic son is rejecting this and saying, you know, this is not this is not redemption. This is trap, right? And I could I could see Bergman pointing to that end scene that you mentioned, KJ, and going, you know, this is this is your this is your God. This is what He gives us. Um, you know, this guy tries to kill his kids with tuberculosis, and you know, he he says, "Please believe me. I want to change." Um, and she goes, "Okay." Uh, so that is an interesting development in in terms of. Um, in terms of like afterlifes of this film and how and how adaptation and how like kind of intertextual material uh, uh, work their way out through the generations. Okay. So as great as the act scene is, his side, it's tense, he's breaking through the thing and it cuts to the woman, uh, to I think Anne or Annie is her name. It cuts to his wife, like three times and she's putting on the kid's coat, her buttons. She's fumbling with the buttons. Lady, it's not that important. It's not that cold outside. Pick up the kids, grab the coat, maybe put it on on the way out or at, when you're at a friend's house or when you're at the police station, go. So that kind of took me out of the scene a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I agree completely, <laughs> Ragnar. It was a little strange. There's this manic guy destroying a door with the intent probably to kill you and I, I don't know if the writers, the directors like, well, well, what should they be doing to make sure they don't leave? Well, have you ever tried to put a kid's coat on? Yeah, that's not easy. Let's put a kid's coat on. Like it's... <laughs> the wrong button. I have to start they all over on the again. left, they're on the right. I think. <laughs> on the other side of the door in that scene too, the way he handles that ax to get through that door, like sometimes he's using it as a hammer. Sometimes he's using the other side. He's it's just kind of just using it as a bat. I was like, you probably could have gotten through that door a lot quicker if you really put your mind to it. Yeah, this movie should work on its ax scenes more. Hopefully the, the remakes <laughs> were a little more solid. Well, The Shining, they're in a dead end, right? There's no There's no way out of that room, so... There you go. Stanley Kubrick yeah, saw your criticism, yeah. Ragnar, and he prepared for it. The, the last thing I want to say is that not, not necessarily the, the content in the movie, but the movie itself, uh, I'm going to touch again about how it's a great gateway for silent film. And I think silent films, they're, they're such a different kind of movie that it's almost a different kind of language. 
so this is a great movie because it has modern aesthetics to it in a way. It's easy for a modern viewer to come in and it should not be the only silent film that you like. Instead, it should be the film that teaches you how to watch silent films because there are some amazing, amazing movies. So this film, Modern Times, City Lights, and All Quiet on the Western Front are movies that can help a viewer understand how to appreciate the pacing and the characteristics of a silent film and help uh, one then venture into a very, very large world of excellent films. I wouldn't be surprised if we start to cover some of those movies you mentioned <laughs> over time. Um, I guess this is the awkward part of the episode where I congratulate myself for winning. So good job, Nick, with these crazy, crazy points that were <laughs> out. So yay me. <laughs> uh, Ragnar, honestly, it was great having you on the show again today. And hopefully you'll join us again sometime. I hope so. He's giving his hats off to us. <laughs> this is an audio-only podcast, Ragnar. I'm a visual artist. What can I say? <laughs> uh, I'd also like to thank our speculative editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss Nick's recommendation, which is my recommendation, from 1990, Home Alone. We have a special guest. My wife, Christine, will be joining us, and this is one of our holiday favorites, so should be a good time. See you then. Ding, 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 ding. I, I, I was I was joking with them at I had I just watched the conclusion of this movie and I, I was debating whether to talk about it, but I kind of ran out of steam. But I'll tell you anyway, Ragnar, because you're on on the on the call right now. So I finished watching this movie and I was like, this was a really enjoyable, great movie. I, I really loved how this movie played out. And all across the screen, you know, it's a it's a it's a black and white movie. So the screen is pretty much black and there's a four letter word that comes up in Swedish. <laughs> and I'm like, what did this movie just call me? Now I know in Swedish it's pronounced slut, but it means the end or final. But it was just so funny that I had a moment with this movie and it almost like friggin' cursed at me. <laughs> so agreed. I, I brought my wife. I'm like, Elkie, come check this out. I did the same thing. I, yeah. I literally I literally text KJ and Tom, I'm like what did this movie just call me? 